Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring my podcast. It's finally time to say no to censorship and take back your online privacy, including your privacy on social media. So secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash gold and get an extra three months free on a one-year subscription package. Well, inflation continues to be a hot topic in the financial media, although most of the conversation seems to center around the fact that all this inflation talk is overblown and everybody is trying to reassure the public, investors, that there really is no inflation, that it's all transitory like the Fed says, And that those of us who are warning about inflation, well, we're the same chicken littles who warned about inflation following the 2008 financial crisis when the Fed embarked on quantitative easing and 0% interest rates for the first time. You know, we were warning about inflation and, you know, inflation never turned out uh, to be a problem. There was no inflation. And so the fact that the same old people like me, although usually they don't mention me by name, although I know a lot of the people are thinking my name, even though they're not saying it. But of course, I wasn't the only person who was worried about inflation. In fact, if you remember, gold went up to 1900 in 2011 because people were worried back then about the consequences of all the money printing. But the fact that the Fed was able to convince everybody that there was no inflation and the government was able to fool everybody with their highly manipulated uh, consumer price numbers. The people who were concerned about inflation have been discredited, even though we have had quite a bit of inflation beneath the surface. I mean, consumer prices have risen. And in fact, I think they've risen by more than the official measures would indicate, but the inflation manifests itself in different ways. Asset prices are highly inflated. So what happened in the stock market, what happened in the real estate market, in all sorts of markets is a consequence of inflation. Look at these huge economic imbalances, trade deficits, budget deficits, all of this, a negative consequence of inflation. So inflation has in fact been here. It's done a lot of damage uh, beneath the surface, but no, it hasn't affected consumer prices to the degree that I and other people 
initially believed, and I still think those concerns are going to be borne out by reality. It's just that the lag is going to be many, many years longer than I and other people originally expected. But everybody who is drawing comfort from the fact that they think the people who were warning about inflation back then were wrong, and somehow the people who said there was going to be no inflation and who were heralding the success of the Fed's policy, that somehow these people were vindicated because the policy was a success, they're completely wrong. The policy was an abysmal failure, which is why the Fed has had to repeat it so many times. But now it really seems obvious that all of those inflation chickens are finally coming home to roost and people like me are about to get vindicated, but the mainstream still is oblivious to this reality, despite all of the overwhelming evidence that they can now see that inflation is rearing its ugly head in a big way. One indicator of that is what's happening to the price of oil. Oil today topped $70 a barrel for the first time since COVID. In fact, oil prices are now higher than they were before the initial COVID collapse in early 2020 at $70.02, I believe was today's close. The high price I saw intraday was about $70.27. Again, this is West Texas intermediary. Brent prices are higher than that, but I'm talking about West Texas here. But you know what's more significant than the $70 price that we're looking at for oil now is where the future price is likely to be. Because if you look at a chart, there really is very little upside resistance here to the oil price. I mean, I think the next area of resistance is going to be around $100 a barrel. And I would expect prices to approach, if not exceed, $100 a barrel by the end of the year. I mean, certainly we're going to get above 80 but I think we're going to finish the year probably somewhere between 80 and 100, maybe closer to 100. That is a huge increase in oil prices from where the year began and from where they were at their low point. Of course, you know, they went negative in 2020. So we'll completely you know, disregard uh, that because you cannot actually buy oil uh, for a negative place other than, you know, in the futures market at that moment in time. But the trajectory here is very significant. You can't ignore it. But more importantly, where are oil prices likely to be in 2022? Because if you look at this chart, it seems to me that we are going to test the record highs just below $150 a barrel that were set back in the summer of 2008. That was just before the 08 financial crisis. And that's what really turned the whole commodity bull market, not just the oil market. But the reason we got that sharp drop in oil prices is because we had a big rise in the dollar when the financial crisis broke out. I think we're going to revisit that $150 price level in 2022 in conjunction with a big decline in the dollar. I think the dollar is going to revisit the lows that it established in summer of 2008, most likely, I think, sometime in 2022. So a big rise in oil prices is going to coincide with a big dump in the dollar. Of course, it's not just going to be oil prices that are going up. 
It's going to be all sorts of commodity and consumer prices. But right now, the media is overlooking the significance of what's happening with oil prices. And again, it's not that rising oil prices are going to cause the inflation. Rising oil prices are being caused by inflation. They are the result of inflation. But of course, oil is a very important component of a lot of other prices because you need oil to make stuff or other forms of energy. But not only is oil uh, integral to the manufacturing process, but also the transportation process, because all the goods that are produced need to be transported uh, to the end user. And in the case of America, if it's a manufactured good, that generally means that first we got to bring all the stuff over here from Asia, which means you have to cross a huge ocean. There's a lot of energy there. And then, of course, as I've mentioned on this podcast, we have to pay the energy cost of bringing the empty containers back across the Pacific so they can come here again full of stuff. So we have the round trip cost that has to be built in to the prices. But of course, all the companies that are manufacturing those products in Asia or anywhere else, they have to use energy in the production process. So that feeds into the price. So energy makes goods more expensive to produce, and then it makes them more expensive to transport them to America. But of course, when the goods are taken off the ships and they're on the docks, it doesn't end because now they have to go to their final destination. They have to be put on buses or trucks most of the time. Not that much stuff travels by rail, which is unfortunate because that's more efficient. We transport most of the merchandise on trucks, and those trucks also need gasoline. And of course, a lot of the stuff gets brought to an Amazon warehouse by truck, but then it has to be individually transported by planes and trucks and all all over to get to the individual consumers, their houses, because they've ordered the stuff. So all of this stuff is going to be bleeding in to consumer prices. But again, manufacturers are not just dealing with higher energy costs. The cost of all the components of production are going up, including labor costs, because of course, workers, right, they're also seeing their cost of living go up. Food is more expensive. They need uh, oil. They have to get back and forth to work. They got to heat their homes or air condition their homes. So obviously, if they're going to work, they need to earn more money to be able to afford to live and, and go to work. So everybody's demanding more more wages. So there is significant evidence of inflation right now if you just look at what's happening to consumer prices. Yet the media continues to downplay the significance of what we're seeing. And one of the ways they're doing this is by calling our attention to the bond market and the stock market as somehow validating the fact that we've got nothing to worry about. The bond market in particular, I hear a lot of people say, well, the bond market proves that there's no real inflation threat long term because the bond market is not showing any type of inflation premium. And therefore, bond investors who are looking at 10-year or 30-year treasury bonds, since they're not demanding a inflation premium to lend out money for 10 years or 30 years, then obviously bond investors are not worried about inflation. And so it's a false alarm because if there really was an inflation threat, certainly lenders would perceive that threat and they would demand to be compensated for their loss of purchasing power 
uh, and factor that in to the yield curve. So apparently this lack of an inflation premium being built into the bond market is proof that we shouldn't worry and that there's no inflation because the bond market is clearly showing us that there's nothing to worry about. Well, the bond market is completely broken. It is not the same type of reliable indicator of inflation fears that it once was when we had a free market in bonds. The bond market has been totally corrupted by central bankers, in particular the Fed, also foreign central banks. So it is not reliable. There are no bond market vigilantes that are here uh, to uh, reprice bonds lower amid an inflationary environment. In fact, take a look at the yield on the U.S. 10-year Treasury. It's barely over 1.5%. Now, that is completely ridiculous because, first of all, most people who are buying U.S. Treasuries have to pay taxes on the interest. So if you assume about a 30% tax rate, if you're getting a 1.5% taxable yield, after taxes, you're getting 1%. Well, in order for Treasuries, 10-year Treasuries, to produce any kind of positive yield, you have to assume that inflation over the next 10 years is going to be less than 1%. Now, nobody would be dumb enough to make that assumption. The fact that the 10-year Treasury yield is factoring in less than 1% a year inflation, and of course, it has to be less than 1%, because if you think inflation is going to be 1% and your yield is 1%, Well, you're getting no return. I mean, who lends money out for 10 years on the expectation that they're going to get zero return for being without their money for 10 years? I mean, even if bond investors only want a half a percent a year return, real, if they're satisfied with a half a percent real returns, then according to the 10-year treasury bond market, the expectation is for inflation to be one half of one percent on average for the next 10 years. That is laughable. There is no way that that's true. I mean, even if the bond market was dumb enough to believe that inflation was going to be 2% a year for the next 10 years, you would expect at a minimum the yield on a 10-year treasury to be 3% at a minimum. I mean, really, if I believed that inflation was going to be 2%, I still wouldn't want to loan money to the U.S. government at 3%. That's not nearly enough of a return to warrant tying up my money for 10 years at such a ridiculously low rate. But it's even more ridiculous if you look at the 30-year yield. There, the yield is 2.2%. How can anybody believe that that is a accurate free market when you got a 2.2% yield on a 30-year treasury? Because again, if you're in a 30% tax bracket, after taxes, your yield is 1.5%. So if you demand a half a percent return for tying up your money for 30 years, right? If you're really thinking that's okay, I'm happy with one half a percent per year return. And I don't know anybody who would be happy with a half a percent return real, right? Above the rate of inflation. But in order for a person buying a 30-year treasury who's paying taxes to expect a half a percent real return, they would have to believe that inflation in the United States is going to average 1% a year for the next 30 years, which is lower than its average for the past 10. How can anybody be dumb enough to think 
a country printing all this money with all this debt is somehow going to go 30 years with an inflation rate of less than 1%. Look, the fact that the bond yields are not already 4 or 5%, even if you believe that inflation is only going to be 2 2.5%, 30-year treasuries got to be yielding 4% to 5% if that's your expectation. The fact that the yields are so low is proof that you can't place any stock in anything you're seeing in this bond market. It is completely broken. You know, an analogy I've used is trying to take somebody's temperature with a broken thermometer, right? You can look at somebody who is sweating or they're breaking out. I mean, they're shivering. I mean, you touch them and they're burning up, right? They really look sick. But then you put this thermometer in and you look at the temperature and it says 98.6. You say, oh, you're not sick. Go to work, go to school. I mean, you you can't ignore what you're seeing and you're just looking at this thermometer that's broken, right? Or, you know, you're in a car and you're going 100 miles an hour, but your speedometer says you're going 50 miles an hour and you think, oh, I guess I'm not speeding. Well, just look out the window. You're zooming past all these cars. Clearly, you got a busted speedometer on your car, right? You can't just look at your instruments Uh, when your eyes tell you that your instruments are wrong. So in this situation, if you're looking at the bond market and this is your instrument and you're looking at a yield on a 30-year treasury of 2.2, you can't say, okay, I guess there's no inflation because the bond market is only having a 2.2% yield. That yield is so absurdly low, even if you believed we were only going to have one and a half, two percent inflation. There's no way the yields would be this low. So forget the bond market. It is completely corrupted by governments and central banks printing money, buying bonds. There may be some other leveraged speculators in there that have no intention of holding these bonds to maturity. There's some trading going on. And so forget about it. You you can't take any comfort in the bond market. Uh, it has been completely destroyed of any type of reliability. So forget about the bond market. The other thing that the financial media is talking about is the stock market, right? They're pointing to the fact that the major averages are right near all-time record highs, and they're concluding that, well, I guess stock investors, they're not worried about inflation because if they were worried about inflation, uh, the stock market would be selling off because, you know, inflation is not a good thing. And so if investors were really concerned about inflation, uh, they'd be selling stocks. They wouldn't be buying stocks. And I think that is completely wrong. In fact, I think investors are buying stocks because they're worried about inflation. They're trying to find a way to preserve their wealth and they want to buy real assets. And so they're buying stocks. Now, the reason that you're seeing value stocks beating now momentum stocks is because in an inflationary environment, those are exactly the kind of stocks that you want to buy. You want to buy stocks that pay dividends now, not stocks that may pay dividends in the future and that don't even have earnings today. These high growth stocks where earnings are way in the distant future, those are the kind of stocks that you want to buy in a low inflation environment. But if you think there's going to be a lot of inflation, then there is a premium assigned to earnings in the present, as opposed to earnings that are going to be inflated away in the future. So the fact that investors are expressing a preference now for current income and value-oriented stocks 
And of course, look at all of the raw material stocks, the natural resource cyclical stocks that do well with inflation. Those are the ones that are outperforming. So people that are pointing to the record highs in the stock market as some indication that investors aren't worried about inflation, they have it completely backwards. It's because investors are worried about inflation that they are buying stocks. After all, they can't buy bonds. I mean, if you're worried about inflation, how could you buy a U.S. Treasury? The Treasury yields are so low, you know that inflation is going to destroy those coupons. So you can't buy bonds. So where are you going to go? People are buying stocks as an inflation hedge. What the record highs in the stock market actually tells you about what investors expect, it doesn't tell you that they don't expect inflation or that they're not afraid of inflation. What it shows is they're not afraid of the Fed fighting inflation. See, if stock market investors thought the Fed was going to be aggressive and fight inflation, then they probably wouldn't want to buy stocks because they would know that big increases in interest rates would hurt the stock market and hurt the economy. I think the fact that investors are willing to buy stocks in the face of all this inflation evidence, it's because they know the Fed's not going to do anything about the inflation. They're confident the Fed's not going to fight inflation. And so they're not worried about a big increase in interest rates knocking down stock prices, but they are worried about persistent inflation eroding away the value of uh, their their bond holdings. So they don't want to buy those or their cash. So they got to get rid of their cash. They have to buy something and they're buying stocks. Now, you may think, well, why aren't they just buying gold? Why aren't they buying gold stocks? I think they will. But I think right now you still have too much optimism about growth and somehow a growing economy. It's felt to be bad for gold stocks or bad for gold. And I think that even though the markets are not afraid of the Fed aggressively fighting inflation uh, with rate hikes, I think they believe that rate hikes are coming. I just don't think they think those rate hikes are going to be big enough to undermine stocks. But for some reason, they think any rate hikes are going to undermine gold. And so that's why I don't think you've got the investors moving to gold as an inflation hedge. I think they're moving to stocks. In fact, Warren Buffett himself, one of the reasons that he has always dismissed gold is because he's always said that buying businesses historically is a much better inflation hedge than buying gold. And in general, I agree with that sentiment. It's only when you have very, very high inflation that you want to own gold. During periods of rapid inflation or hyperinflation, gold is going to outperform equities. But over longer periods of time, a business that is growing is going to outperform just a metal that you have you know, in a safe or, you know, buried in the ground. But of course, all that also depends on your starting point. I mean, if you're overpaying for stocks, if you're paying very, very high prices, that may not be the case. But if you're buying stocks at relatively good valuations, then yes, that makes a lot more sense as an inflation hedge than just owning gold. But another reason that stocks are a excellent inflation hedge is because stocks have debt. And inflation transfers purchasing power from creditors to debtors. And so when you have corporations that have borrowed money and you have a lot of inflation, the corporate bondholders are the losers and therefore the stockholders are the winners because they could repay their debt 
with inflated dollars. So you can't look at a rise in the stock market as proof that there's no inflation when people would specifically buy stocks because they are worried about inflation. What they're not worried about is the Fed aggressively fighting inflation because they can't. But pretty soon, they are going to open their eyes to the reality of how much worse the inflation problem is actually going to be uh, than they're currently perceiving. And when they do that, you're going to see a much bigger move into gold and into gold stocks. We all know that the far left has completely taken over social media. Companies like Twitter and Facebook, they were originally supposed to be open platforms, kind of like a modern day digital town square where people can get together and express their opinions. Well, we now know that those opinions are highly editorialized, that these companies try their best to minimize the impact that conservatives and libertarians make online. So the best way to fight back is to deny these companies that which they value most, and that's your information, because that's their lifeblood. That's how they make money selling your data to advertisers. So if you want to fight back, hit them where it hurts. And that's where ExpressVPN comes in. Because the way all these companies make money is they track your data, your searches, the videos that you watch, the sites that you frequent, and they know everything about you. And then they compile all this data and then they sell it to the advertisers. But when you use ExpressVPN, you're anonymizing much of your online presence by hiding your IP address. That makes your activity much more difficult to trace and then to sell. And it's not just more difficult for the advertisers, it's more difficult for the government to know what you're doing. And that's my main concern. I'm fine with advertisers knowing what I like because it helps target ads so that I may know about things that I might want to buy. What I don't want is for the government to have access to this information because government may use it in ways that I'm not happy about because the government doesn't have to voluntarily get me to give them their money. The government can take my money by force. And ExpressVPN is the easiest and best way that I know to do this. Once you subscribe, you just tap one button on your phone or your computer and you're protected. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data to protect you from hackers and other internet bad actors. It's finally time to say no to the internet thought police and to take back your online privacy at expressvpn.com gold. By visiting my special link, you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN services for free. Again, that's expressvpn.com dot com slash gold e-x-p-r-e-s-s-v-p-n dot com slash gold go to expressvpm.com slash gold to protect your data today and in fact you know not only do we have all of the indication of rising prices but rising wages and of course a lot of people think oh we can't have inflation unless we have rising wages which is nonsense we can But right now, we do have rising wages. And of course, wages are just prices. They're just the price of labor. We call that price a wage, but it is still a price, and it is being impacted uh, by inflation. But it's also being impacted by government policy to discourage people from working. But the way they're getting compensated 
for not working is because we're inflating the money supply. We're printing money and giving it to people not to work. So that is a double whammy when it comes to inflation. But look at the jolts numbers that were released today. This is the April number. This is the total number of unfilled jobs shot up from an upwardly revised 8.288 million in March to 9.286 million in April. This is an all-time record. I mean, ever since they started this JOLT survey, there have never been more open jobs that are unfilled, right? You have all these employers now trying to hire people and they can't do it. And not only is there a record in the number of open jobs, but a record number of Americans are now quitting their jobs. The quits rate is at an all-time record high. Now, of course, one of the reasons that people may be willing to quit a job they don't like is because there's so many jobs available that they could take if they don't like the job that they have. But I also think that people are able to collect unemployment. I mean, I may be wrong on this, but I I don't think so. I think I remember Biden saying that, you know, if you quit your job due to COVID, right, because you don't want to get sick or because you have to stay at home and you have to take care of a kid who's not in school or there's reasons that you can actually quit your job and still get all these lucrative unemployment benefits. But this is all going to push up wages. You have so many people who don't want jobs, so many people quitting the jobs that they have. And again, the fact that we have all of these jobs available. It's not because we have this booming economy. And so all these new businesses are starting up and they're trying to hire people and they're just not there. These are the same businesses that we had before COVID. These are businesses that shut down during COVID. Now they're trying to start back up and they want to rehire the workers that they let go, but those workers don't want to come back because they like their paid vacations. In fact, they like them more because they're more lucrative. They're getting paid more to be on vacation than they used to get paid to go to work. So why would anybody want to give up that sweetheart deal? They don't. So you have all of these employers trying to hire people. Nobody wants to work. Obviously, wages are going to go up in this environment because the only way to tempt people off of a lucrative gig on unemployment is to really make it worth their while by paying them more money. And of course, the ultimate person responsible for paying those higher wages is the consumer of the products, the goods or services that those wages are helping to produce All of that is going to be added in to the final cost. So prices are going up. They're already going up. They're going to keep going up. All the indications are there, yet the financial media wants to pretend that what they're seeing is not happening. They're looking at a broken bond market as supposed proof that there's no inflation. They're looking at a rising stock market, and they're thinking that's evidence of no inflation when, in fact, It evidences the opposite, that there is inflation. And then they point to the people like me, who they claim were wrong uh, back in 2010, 11, and 12 for forecasting inflation. We weren't wrong. There was inflation. We were just early in when inflation would become a huge problem for consumer prices. It's about to even be a worse problem than I thought back then. And the cost of fighting inflation is so much higher now because we have so much more debt than we had a decade ago. Therefore, the likelihood 
of the Fed trying to put out this fire has been substantially diminished, and therefore the threat that inflation turns into hyperinflation is more significant now than it's ever been. And the Fed, of course, is just as oblivious to this threat. Although Janet Yellen, I guess over the weekend, finally admitted uh, that we're going to have more inflation, right? She said that if the Biden administration's stimulus, if all this extra government spending, which of course is being financed uh, by the Fed and monetized, she said if we end up with more inflation or if we end up in a slightly higher interest rate environment, she said this is a good thing. It's going to be good for society and it's going to be good for the Fed. So instead of basically just saying we're not going to have any inflation or saying inflation is transitory, now she's just saying, okay, we're going to have inflation, but it's a good thing. It's good for society. How is a bigger increase in the cost of living good for society? I mean, does she mean by society like the super rich, like, you know, high society? Is that who's going to benefit because high society is loaded up with assets and has a lot of debt on those assets? Is that what she means? High society? But if she means like all the people, like the middle class and the working poor, a lot of the people who voted uh, for Biden, if by society she means, you know, the common man, who is she kidding? How is a bigger increase in inflation good for the common man? It's not. It is a disaster for society. I mean, there are winners. Yes, some debtors are winners, but overall, there's losers. Yes, the U.S. government maybe is a winner because a lot of its debt gets wiped out, but it keeps on accumulating more. For Janet Yellen, who used to chair the Federal Reserve herself, who supposedly was the nation's number one inflation fighter, to now say that, hey, inflation is good for society. Well, if inflation is so good for society, why does the Fed have a mandate to have low inflation? Why not mandate high inflation? I mean, if if inflation is good, more inflation is better, right? So, I mean, we could really have a, a great society, right, if we have even more inflation. But, of course, Janet Yellen just assumes that it's going to be a little bit more inflation, you know, like she thinks that we're going to have slightly higher interest rates. Well, we're not going to have slightly higher interest rates. Ultimately, we're going to have much higher interest rates. Now, I agree with Janet Yellen that higher interest rates, not slightly higher, but significantly higher interest rates will be good for society in the long run. In the short run, it's going to be a disaster because it's going to prick the bubble. Now, of course, the bubble needs to be pricked. The sooner, the better. But we're going to have to deal with a lot of problems that we have been sweeping under the rug or kicking down the road uh, once that happens. And Yellen doesn't understand that. I mean, she just thinks, oh, we can have slightly higher interest rates and everything's going to be fine, even though we have an enormous amount of debt. It won't be fine. And we won't just have slightly higher rates. We are going to have much higher rates because look at where we're starting from. Rates are at zero, right? The long bond, the yield on the 10-year, I just went over that, is 1.5%. I mean, what's slightly higher? 1.6, 1.7? We're not going to go there. We need to go much higher. Rates need to double, triple. That's not slightly higher. That is significantly higher. That's where rates need to go, and that's where they would go, but for the interference of the Federal Reserve. But they need to be there to return long-term structural balances to the U.S. economy so that we can have 
savings so that we can have investments so that we can have production. We need to have interest rates reflect reality, not manipulated by government. So yes, in the long run, higher interest rates will benefit society. But in the short run, society is going to be in for a world of hurt as we have to finally address the problems that we have refused to address in the past. It's like, you know, the the Novocaine is finally wearing off and now we got to feel the pain of whatever we were being numbed from, from the Novocaine. But Janet Yellen uh, is not suggesting that at all. She's just trying to say that, well, if we have higher interest rates, that's going to be good for society. Yeah, tell that to all the people who are leveraged to the max. Tell that to the U.S. government that higher interest rates are good. I mean, higher interest rates scare the hell out of the Fed. They scare the hell out of the government. That's why the government and the Fed is doing everything they can to artificially suppress interest rates and now keep them at zero because even a slight increase in interest rates is more than the economy can bear. Remember, interest rates got to about 2.5% in the fourth quarter of 2018 when all hell broke loose, and that is a slight increase. To go to 2.5%, I think, from where we are would be a slight increase. And if we couldn't handle that back then, we clearly can't handle it now because the level of debt is so much greater than it was then. And so the more debt you have, the lower interest rate is required to be able to service that debt. So if 2.5% was too much when the national debt was significantly lower than it is today, then that threshold is much lower. I don't even think we could survive a move to 1% from the Fed, and I doubt we can survive yields on 10-year treasuries of even 2%, which is why they're still at 1.5%, not because there's no inflation, but because the Federal Reserve is creating massive amounts of inflation to artificially limit the yield on these bonds because that's the only way the government can afford to pay the interest. So the inflation is there. And now you even have Janet Yellen acknowledging that we're going to have inflation. She's just trying to convince us that it's a good thing. Well, at some point, it's going to be obvious that we've got too much of a good thing. In fact, the other uh, symptom of our imbalances and our inflation, the trade deficit in goods and services was released earlier today. This is the April number. The March number was revised slightly up from the original $74.4 billion up to $75 billion. That is a huge trade deficit for one month. And of course, we have a surplus in services. So the deficit in goods is quite a bit higher than 75. But even when you offset our goods deficit with our services surplus, 75 billion was a huge number. We were supposed to have 69 billion for April, and we came out almost exactly on expectations of 68.9. So 0.1% better uh, than what we had estimated. But still, another horrific number. I mean, it's only slightly less horrific than the number for the previous month, although we'll see what we end up revising this number to. We'll probably end up revising it up uh, next month. But these numbers are going to keep going higher and higher and higher. This is a result of the inflation. We're printing money, but since we're not producing goods, we're spending that money to buy the goods that are produced abroad, and therefore the trade deficit is higher. But those higher trade deficits in and of themselves are going to push the U.S. dollar down because we are flooding the world with excess dollars that they don't need to buy U.S. goods. So they're selling them 
and the dollar goes down, which puts more upward pressure, not only on the price of those goods, but a weak dollar puts more upward pressure on oil prices, as does the growing volume of our trade deficits because more energy is required to transport those goods over here. So all of this is self-perpetuating, higher prices, weaker dollar. So these trends are going to continue and they're going to get worse. Yes, the media is going to try to convince us that we shouldn't be worried and try to lull us into a false sense of confidence. Don't believe them. Believe your own eyes and take advantage of the fact that the market still doesn't appreciate the gravity of this situation. Because right now, I think the best inflation hedge is not stocks, but gold stocks, right? Not general stocks and not even gold itself, the metal or silver. I think the real leveraged bet, the real way to play an unexpected acceleration in inflation is with the mining stocks. On another subject, talking about a different type of tax rather than the inflation tax, a a more traditional income tax, it looks like over the weekend, the G7 has moved to embrace the Biden administration's idea of a global minimum corporate tax. And they're talking of 15% minimum rate, which first of all, I think this is terrible that it's the United States that is the leader in trying to move the world to higher income taxes. I mean, we should be the leader in pushing the world for lower tax. I mean, we should abolish our income tax, our corporate income tax, and try to lead with that example instead of being the primary factor to drive tax rates higher, not just in the United States, but all around the world. And, you know, you've got all these politicians who think this is a great thing, right, that somehow uh, low taxes are bad. They keep referring to it as a race to the bottom, right, like it's a bad thing because, you know, we're racing to the bottom. Well, sometimes a low number is not a bad thing, right? Like golf, right? Everybody wants to race to the bottom when it comes to their golf score, right? A low golf score is good. The lower, the better. The person who has the lowest score wins. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to tax rates. The lowest tax rate is the best tax rate. The best tax rate is zero. And so the closer you come to zero, the further ahead you are. So it's not a race to the bottom when you're lowering your taxes. It's a race to the top. The people on the top, the countries on the top are the ones with the lowest taxes. And in fact, look around the world. The most successful countries with the strongest economies have the lowest rates of taxation. Taxes is diverting resources from the private sector to the government. That is not how you create wealth. The way societies maximize their wealth is by minimizing the resources consumed by government. You want to make government as small as possible so you can have an economy that's as big and productive as possible. So the goal is low taxes. The lower, the better. So the fact that we are striving to impose a minimum tax all around the world is a loss for the world. The governments, the politicians are trying to sell this as a good thing. It is a bad thing. And there is nothing wrong with tax competition. I mean, when is competition a bad thing? The fact that governments compete with low taxes, right? Because they people don't want high taxes. We want governments to compete with low taxes. And even if you live in a country where the taxes aren't that low and you think, oh, uh, people are leaving to these low tax countries, 
if it wasn't for the competition from these low tax countries, the high tax countries would have even higher taxes, right? Because there's a point to which people are going to move. There's a breaking point, right? If there is no competition from low tax countries, maybe higher tax countries could say, oh, we'll have a rate of 50% or 60% instead of 30%. But that might be the point where you go to the low tax country. So the existence of a low tax country is one of the reasons that taxes in the high tax countries aren't even higher. So everybody is benefiting from the fact that there is competition and governments know that if they raise taxes too much, people are gonna leave to seek out lower taxes. But to the extent that the high tax countries can impose minimum taxes on other countries, then that gives them leeway to jack up their taxes in their own countries. So anybody who's buying into this nonsense that somehow if we have minimum taxes in other countries, that's going to level the playing field, that it's going to mean your taxes can go down if you're in a high tax country. Absolutely not. It means your taxes are going to go up. This is a big negative for the world because we're trying to divert more resources away from the private sector where they could be used productively towards government sectors where they will be used unproductively. And in fact, some of the big losers in this are going to be U.S. corporations, U.S. multinational corporations that are going to end up paying higher taxes, not to the United States, but higher taxes in Europe, higher taxes in Asia. How does that benefit American companies when U.S. companies are now going to be paying higher taxes overseas? That benefits overseas governments, doesn't benefit the U.S. government. They don't collect any of those taxes. In fact, the taxes that American companies pay internationally end up as a tax credit to what they pay in the U.S. So we're actually trying to force foreign governments to tax American companies at even higher rates makes absolutely no sense. But we're doing that and we're acting like we're achieving some type of victory when this is a huge loss, but not just for America, but for the entire world. I want to finish up the podcast, though, by turning my attention to uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. You know, we just finished this huge conference. I mentioned the conference on my last podcast in Miami, biggest Bitcoin conference ever, really more of a trade show than a conference or just really like a love fest. It was everybody was there to sing the praises of Bitcoin. It was the faithful, all of the cult members were down there in mass to celebrate and pay homage to Bitcoin. And I'm sure a lot of people expected all of the enthusiasm of the conference and all of the big names and all the pie in the sky forecasts of sky high prices and Bitcoin going to the moon. And of course, I'm sure all these people there, you know, these are the guys with laser beams on their eyes, you know, 100,000 or bust. And then we're going higher. Everybody probably expected this conference type rally. And my thinking is that there were probably some speculators that bought some Bitcoin on a trade thinking, hey, I'll buy it and then I'll sell into the conference hype. We'll have some type of conference related rise and I'll make a quick profit. Well, that rally never materialized. I mean, the fact that they didn't have a Bitcoin rally during this Bitcoin conference really shows you that the market is fully saturated, that everybody who could possibly want to buy Bitcoin has already bought it. You know, I know people say, but there's all these people around the world who still haven't bought Bitcoin. That's true. 
It's not because they don't know about Bitcoin. It's because they don't want to buy it. I would have to say that all the people who want to buy Bitcoin, pretty much, they already bought it because there was nobody to buy this conference. And so what's happening now is the people who bought an anticipation of the conference hoping to sell into a rally, well, they're stuck and either they're selling into a decline or they're just holding and hoping that we get a rally. But so far, that rally is not materializing. In fact, earlier today, Bitcoin got all the way down to 31,000. Again, all the way down. It's still a very high number, but we're down near the lows again because the lowest we hit was about 30,000 after we peaked out at close to 65,000. Now, as I am recording this podcast, we have had a pretty big rebound off the lows. Uh, Right now, we're trading a little bit below 34,000 per Bitcoin, but the trend is clearly down. I mean, there's no denying the downtrend. And what is very ominous is if you look at a long-term chart, the market looks like it could collapse. I mean, to me, the real support is somewhere maybe between 10 and 15,000, maybe even a little lower. We can still crash down there and still be in a long-term bull market if you go back to the inception of Bitcoin 10 years ago. But looking at this big head and shoulders top, looking at the trajectory of the recent collapse, Uh, looking at all these trend lines and moving averages that have been broken, knowing how much leverage there is in Bitcoin. I mean, the market is so vulnerable and nobody cares. Maximum complacency. Everybody was excited at this conference. You have all the ingredients that you would expect to see prior to a major decline in Bitcoin. In fact, look what happened today. Michael Saylor at MicroStrategy yesterday, right before today's decline, announced that MicroStrategy was going to borrow another $400 million to buy even more Bitcoin with borrowed money, selling preferred debt. Well, what they announced today was that they were going to increase the size of this bond offering from $400 million to $500 million, presumably because they got a big drop in the price of Bitcoin. So now they want to buy even more of it. I think they already own like two billion dollars at the current market price worth of Bitcoin. Much of that, certainly more than a billion dollars of it was purchased by issuing debt. In fact, I think that had MicroStrategy not made this announcement, my guess is the price of Bitcoin would be lower now than it is. In fact, since they have announced the intention to buy all this Bitcoin, I think that gives an incentive to the market to try to prop the price up long enough to allow this purchase to happen so that people can sell some overpriced Bitcoin to MicroStrategy that has indicated that it is about to go into the market with this big buy order. And I'm sure there's a lot of sellers who are licking their chops at this money coming into the market because the vast majority of people who sell Bitcoin, well, they get Tether. And who knows if the Tether has any actual value, but MicroStrategy, they're coming in with real money not phony money. So I'm sure there are some long-term whale hodlers that would love to sell their overpriced Bitcoin to MicroStrategy. So it's probably helping to prop up the market long enough to get this next transaction to go through. But looking at this chart, it is insane for Michael Saylor to want to buy Bitcoin on margin, given the fact that a price collapse looks eminent. I mean, even if you don't think it's a certainty, 
the probability is at least there. You'd have to say it's a coin toss. Maybe there's a 50% probability that Bitcoin goes down to 20,000 or 10,000. Given that probability, why the hell would you go out and borrow more money to speculate on Bitcoin? Obviously, Michael Saylor has never heard of Murphy's Law. And in case some of my listeners haven't heard of Murphy's Law, Murphy's Law is anything that can go wrong will. Well, when you look at that Bitcoin chart, there's a lot that could go wrong and it probably will. There is no point in going into debt to buy Bitcoin in this situation unless you are desperately trying to prop up the price, which is exactly what I think Saylor is trying to do. He is hoping that by borrowing more money and buying more Bitcoin, he can create a bottom. He is desperately trying to stop Bitcoin from collapsing because he's bet the house on Bitcoin. I mean, this is throwing good money after bad. He's already leveraged himself. And not only does he have to prop up Bitcoin, he has to prop up his own company's balance sheet because it's loaded up with Bitcoin. So how does he do that? He keeps borrowing money. Well, how long is he going to do this? How much credit is he going to have to keep going into the market at lower and lower prices and taking on more debt? I mean, at some point, MicroStrategy is going to be in a lot of trouble. They're going to have to actually sell stock to get cash to shore up their balance sheet and probably into a very depressed market, or they're going to have to unload their Bitcoin at a loss. I mean, I think they still have a profit. I think his average cost is maybe around 25000 of Bitcoin, so he's still ahead, but the price could collapse. The debt is still owed. I'm not sure all the covenants on these bonds. I mean, how low can uh, the price of Bitcoin go before the bondholders can take some kind of action? And of course, if the company ends up going bankrupt because of this, do you think the creditors, when they take over ownership of MicroStrategy stock, you think they're going to want to hodl the Bitcoin that are on the balance sheet? No, they're probably going to sell. Although at this point, I might have to speculate that anybody who owns MicroStrategy stock is all in on Bitcoin because MicroStrategy is no longer a software company. I don't think anybody even cares about the software company that behind the scenes is actually deteriorating. Uh, So if you own MicroStrategy, you're just making a bet on Bitcoin. But I'm not really sure that the bondholders are all in on Bitcoin. I mean, they may think they're they're getting a bond. Uh, And I think if they end up owning this company, uh, they're not going to want to hold all these Bitcoin and they're going to sell them. So ultimately, this whole thing is going to be a disaster. But as I've said before, I, I think that Michael Saylor, he's like Captain Ahab. You know, he, he is obsessed. Bitcoin is his whale, right? And, and he is going to die uh, chasing this whale. The problem is everybody who's on his ship, everybody who's a shareholder of MicroStrategy is going to meet the same fate. Either they need a mutiny, which I think it's too late for that. The only thing you could do is abandon ship. And if you look at the chart of MicroStrategy, hell, that chart has even more air beneath it in the short run uh, than does Bitcoin. So to me, that's an even riskier bet than Bitcoin itself. One of the catalysts that people are trying to blame the sell-off today on is the fact that the Justice Department announced that they had recovered about 50% of the colonial ransomware. Remember, they got ransomed for about $4.3 million worth of Bitcoin, which they paid. And apparently the government was able to get $2.3 million worth of that Bitcoin back. I assume they've already 
converted it into cash. So they were part of the selling. But I think they're saying that this is causing people to get a little concerned about Bitcoin. I mean, how easy it was for the government to track it down and more importantly, gain control of the wallet. Apparently, somehow they had their their key. They had the password. They were able to get the Bitcoin. Hey, I can't even recover my password. I've got lost Bitcoin. I've got control of my wallet. And I have no idea what the key is or the password. I can't even get my own Bitcoin. But somehow the U.S. government was able to track down the Bitcoin that belonged to these criminals and actually take the Bitcoin right out of the wallet. I can't even do that with my own wallet. So maybe the fact that the government was able to do this has got people questioning, hey, how secure are my Bitcoin if it's that easy for the government to seize them? Remember, everybody is trying to say, hey, Bitcoin is sensor resistant. The government can't seize it. The government can't confiscate it. Well, they didn't have a problem uh, getting more than half of the Bitcoin that was ransomed from Colonial. So that could be causing some people to be a bit nervous. But I don't think that's the reason that Bitcoin is going down. I just think the technicals look horrible for Bitcoin. I think it was going to go down today regardless. And so they could have blamed it on anything. They're blaming it on this. In fact, one of the big things that they rolled out, right, this was the secret at the end of the Bitcoin conference that was supposed to be, you know, the big, the money moment, right, that was supposed to get everybody to buy was the announcement that El Salvador, right, was going to make Bitcoin legal tender, right? And this is the beginning, right? Bitcoin is going to be legal tender in El Salvador. And this is just going to be the beginning of a trend. El Salvador is going to be the leader of the world. And everybody is going to follow in El Salvador's example and and make uh, Bitcoin legal tender, adopt Bitcoin as their national uh, currency or money or something like that. This is all BS. I mean, first of all, El Salvador is a very small, very poor country. I mean, the fact that you've got this small, poor country that is potentially adopting Bitcoin and you're going to make a big deal out of it. Meanwhile, you're ignoring the fact that like the biggest country, China, one of the wealthiest, most productive countries in the world is now outlawing it, banning Bitcoin. I mean, that loss, the loss of China is much bigger negative for Bitcoin than picking up El Salvador. I mean, this is nothing, but they're making a big deal out of this. But of course, to try to claim that El Salvador, by making Bitcoin legal tender, is actually going to be using it as a unit of account or a medium of exchange, that's not going to happen. This is all BS. This is pandering. What El Salvador wants, what the government wants, is some of these Bitcoin guys to set up offices in El Salvador to rent office space, to create some jobs, to hire people. And so all he has to do in order to get that capital, because the Bitcoin companies now, right, they've got a lot of capital. This is a huge bubble, massive malinvestment. So they've been able to raise a lot of money for all these crypto companies. Why wouldn't El Salvador want some of these crypto companies setting up shop in its country, hiring people, paying taxes? All they have to do is kiss a little butt by saying, okay, we'll pass an insignificant law. We'll say it's legal tender. Big deal. No one's going to use it as legal tender. I mean, first of all, yes, El Salvador hasn't issued its own currency since 2001. It gave that up, and now they have been using the U.S. dollar uh, as the official currency. Are they actually going to substitute Bitcoin for dollars? Of course not. I mean, the fact that they're going to 
anointed with that status is just symbolic. It means nothing because you can't transact in Bitcoin, even if they wanted to. It's completely impractical for El Salvador to try to conduct business in Bitcoin. For the poor people of El Salvador to try to engage in commerce with Bitcoin. The costs are prohibitively expensive for it to be used, especially in a poor country like El Salvador. So even if they wanted to adopt Bitcoin and use it in commerce as a medium of exchange, as a unit of account, it's impractical and they can't do it. But they're not going to do it. This is nonsense, nor will any other country. You know, there's a lot of these South American leaders now or politicians that are now showing laser beams on their eyes. And the whole Bitcoin community is lighting up with excitement because they think it's going to be like dominoes down there in South America. And all these countries are going to start adopting Bitcoin. Nobody is going to adopt Bitcoin, especially the countries that still issue their own currency. They're not going to concede their sovereignty when it comes to creating inflation, creating money, and turn the whole thing over to Bitcoin miners. There's no way they're going to do that. But yes, I think if Countries in South America think a lot of Bitcoin companies are looking to set up shop in South America. And if all you have to do to attract this investment into your currency is put laser beams on your Twitter profile or your Facebook profile, sure, why not do that? I mean, politicians uh, do a lot more crazy things than that. So yeah, why wouldn't they want that money. They don't care about Bitcoin. What they care about is the money that these Bitcoin companies are going to be investing. The actual dollars or actual euros that are going to be brought into the local economy, the jobs that will be created, the taxes that will be paid, they couldn't give a damn about Bitcoin. These guys have no idea. But what's happening is the Bitcoin community is trying to play this up as if it's somehow a validation of the concept And we're moving closer to the Bitcoin utopia that everybody believes is coming, where Bitcoin is the unit of account and medium of exchange for the entire world. And all of these young Bitcoin faithful who are still living at home in their parents' basements in that world, they're all going to be the millionaires and the billionaires because all of the purchasing power that is currently housed in all of the world's fiat currencies is going to transfer to Bitcoin, making all of the early adopters and even the people who are adopting it now, who are somehow delusional to believe that they're early as opposed to late to the party, that they're all going to be rich. But this is all a bunch of hyped up nonsense. My advice again to anybody who's listening to this podcast, even if you really love Bitcoin and you think I'm wrong about the long term, sell some of it now because chances are the market is going a lot lower before it goes higher, if it ever goes higher. And so you can sell now and you can buy back those Bitcoin for a lot less money. And the money you save by getting out, put that into something real, buy some foreign stocks, buy some gold, and you can thank me later. (laughs) Thank you.